0: I'm reading today from Matthew 9, 9 through 13, and 18 through 26. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax collection station, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. While he was saying these things to them, suddenly a leader came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. Then suddenly a woman who had been suffering from a flow of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If only I touch his cloak, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the report of this spread through all of that district. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning again, everybody. I want to say a quick thank you as I get set up here. Don't mind me. Uh, to those that made it to the picnic last week. Um, that was a lot of fun. Uh, a little warm, but hey, who doesn't love August and June? Uh, but thank you to those of you who were there for that. That was, a lot, that was cool. I, I love that way of doing community here at Genesis over the summer. Uh, and if you weren't able to join us then, we're going to have another one first weekend in July and another one first weekend in August. It's, really, it's a fun way to do a Sunday morning just to break the routine up a little bit. So, Thank you to those of you who are there for that. Thank you to those of you who are here in the chapel here this morning. It's wonderful to be with you as always. Uh, Big fan of that. And to those of you who have joined us online, thank you as well. It is great to have you here. Uh, We are in ordinary time. Technically, it started last week while we were out picnicking. It's the longest season of the church calendar. If you're relatively new here to Genesis, we follow the church calendar year in and year out, which begins with Advent, Advent which will come, I believe, first weekend of December this year. Ordinary time lasts from last weekend to the weekend after Thanksgiving. So by far the longest season in the church calendar. And it's a time, again, when they call it ordinary time, it's a time where we really try to lean in as ordinary apprentices of Jesus here at Genesis. And I pointed this out before, but if you look at the first page of your liturgy, there's always a description of the season, the liturgical season that we are in, right towards the top there. And I want to draw your attention to a few lines from the way it describes ordinary time where it says that in ordinary time, the incarnate and risen Christ is now present in the world in a different way. The Spirit indwells the believer and empowers the church to engage in God's redemptive mission in the world. We reveal God's light, we exhibit God's life, and we embody God's love. During ordinary time, we are empowered in the going. So, you're officially all empowered. There's donuts in the breezeway. Have a good Sunday, everyone. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But it's an interesting description of it, right? Because, okay, so if it's the spirit that empowers us to live into a life of Christ-likeness. The spirit that's indwelling within us. Okay, how do we do that? <laughs> I think it's a fair question. How do we tap into that? How do we lean into that as ordinary apprentices of Jesus? This week's lectionary readings, all four of them, the Matthew and the Genesis readings that are in our liturgy and the Romans and Psalm readings that are not in our liturgy this week, all come back to one word. Faith. Faith is how we lean in to the Spirit. Faith is how we allow the Spirit to indwell within us and empower us to do the things that God asks us to do, to live out our lives as ordinary apprentices of Jesus. So I want to talk about three things here this morning. I want to talk about what faith is. I want to talk about what faith isn't. There's some problematic teachings around that. And then as we go through those kind, that kind of definitional work, then I want to talk about What do we do with that? What do we do with those definitions? So those are our three signposts as we go through the morning. So first of all, what is faith? What faith is? Faith can look like a lot of different things. It can look like a dramatic response to a call from God, and we see that in today's scriptures, right? We see Jesus show up, see Matthew, call Matthew, Matthew gets up and goes. We see in the Genesis text, God shows up for Abram, says, Abram, let's go. Abraham gets up and goes. And there's a simplicity in that, right? God calls, we respond. But does it always work like that? I mean, I don't know about you, but for those of you that are Enneagram conversant, I'm a five, which means I think through everything for quite a period of time. When I started seminary in fall of 2017, I first started thinking about seminary in about spring of 2016. It took me that long to get to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to pull the trigger on this. This is the call. This is where God wants me to be. I think that's okay. I don't think that means that I lack faith. I don't mean, think that means anybody who thinks their way through things like that lacks faith. I think our faith, like anybody else's faith, is just imperfect. But what we see in today's passage is that Jesus responds even to imperfect faith. But it's, it, you, know, you see that ideal, right? You see... Matthew get up and respond, and you see Abram get up and respond, and it seems like that should be the way it is, right? It seems like there's no questioning. There's, you know, Matthew doesn't say, well, where do you want me to, where am I following you, Jesus, just before I go ahead and pull the trigger on this? Abram doesn't say, uh, well, you tell me to go, but you're not going to tell me where we're going? Why aren't you telling me where we're going? What's, what's going on? There's no negotiating. You know, Matthew doesn't say, you know what, I've got an appointment with a tax guy at three, Can I come follow you after that? Or Abram doesn't say, you know, I'm going to go talk to my wife and let me go talk to my brother and see what they think. And then, you know, it's none of that. They just, there's a call and a respond. And man, I don't know about you, but I wish I could could do that. I really do. It seems like that should be the way that it goes. But it isn't. It isn't all the way that it, it isn't always that way. Sometimes it is. Some of you may have that gift. God bless you if you do. I want to affirm that. I don't. (laughs) I'm just being honest. I don't have that gift. But again, it's not about a perfect response every time. It doesn't have to be a dramatic response every time. Charles Cousar, who's a former professor at Columbia Theological Seminary, was writing about this passage. And he said that discipleship has to do with divine calls and human responses, with drastic changes of direction and radical transformation of commitments. And here's the money sentence. Disciples are those who risk a break with the familiar in order to follow Jesus. I'll read that again. Disciples are those who risk a break with the familiar to follow Jesus. Notice in there, there's nothing about a time limit on there, right? There isn't an immediacy clause in that sentence. Are you willing to risk a break with your familiar, with your comfort zone? I love me, my comfort zone. Are you willing to break with that? Are you willing to depart from that? Are you willing to transform from that? if and when the call comes. That's what discipleship is, and that's what faith is. Having the courage to lean into that. So faith can look like a dramatic response, timely or not, to a call from God. Faith can also look like desperation. When you look at this second portion of today's text, right? They have the story of the leader whose daughter has died, and he's begging Jesus to raise her from the dead. And you have a story sandwiched in between there of a woman who's been dealing with this bleeding condition for a long time and just wants to touch the hem of Jesus' cloak, believing that that will heal her. There are times in life where something traumatic, something sudden happens, and suddenly you feel powerless to respond. What do you do? All you have left to grab a hold of is your faith. And there are times where life wears you down day after day, month after month, year after year, of the same problem, wondering, is healing ever coming? Is this ever going to stop? And that can wear you down to a point where all you have left is your faith. And in that desperation, sometimes that's all we have and that's how we respond, and that's what we see here. The story, I think, of the, of the woman is particularly poignant. The, the male leader that they talk about in this passage, in the Mark and Luke versions he's named... His name is Jairus, and he's the head of a synagogue. We can presume that Matthew's talking about the same person, but the language that Matthew uses doesn't make it real specific. But for somebody who is an important part of this community, asking somebody to do something for them is kind of part of the bit, right? So what we do as religious leaders, we ask people to help. So it wouldn't be a huge deal, even though he's in this desperate state, even though his daughter has just died and he's feeling powerless... Asking Jesus to heal isn't culturally something that goes against his grain. The woman, on the other hand, is a woman living in a patriarchal society. Her stepping up and asking a rabbi for healing, that's something. That's something. And for 12 years to know this condition, I know people that have been dealing with medical conditions for multiple decades. And it's day after day, they don't know when they wake up in the morning, is it going to be a good day or is it not going to be a good day? And I can't imagine the degree to which that has to wear you out, day after day, month after month, year after year. And to be a woman in that society and to have to ask this rabbi for help is a risk. I actually, there's some debate about, you know, this bleeding condition that you, you see described, Right? Because in in Jewish culture at that point in time, there were certain bleeding conditions that made you ritually and spiritually unclean. And I happened to run into one of my professors from Bethel Friday night, who literally wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. So I cornered her at one point and said, let me pick your brain on a couple of things. And we talked about this issue and she said, she actually really encouraged me to pump the brakes on this idea of spiritual and ritual uncleanliness. Because not every bleeding condition fit under that and we're we're awfully quick to go to that note, right? and to play into that trope. She says, that's, that's not always how it was. And the text itself is unclear as to whether this was a ritual or spiritual uncleanliness that she was dealing with. But set even that aside and just be a woman in that culture pleading with a rabbi, please heal me. Because for 12 years, she's dealt with this day after day and month after month and year after year. That's something. That's a risk on her part to step up and do that. And yet in her faith, that's exactly what she does. And Jesus responds. Even in what looks like imperfect faith, waiting until you're in this desperate situation to exercise your faith, Jesus responds, even to imperfect faith. And I want to set aside here for a moment and point out, too, that the strength of your faith doesn't necessarily indicate whether you're going to get healed or not, right? That's also a teaching that's unfortunate in certain spots. I'll talk more about it in a second. But we talked a few weeks ago about the idea of pain and suffering and how the the question of why is a natural question. Why does God allow it? Why doesn't God always stop it? It's a natural question. It just doesn't lead us much of anywhere. There's a mystery there, and we run full on into that mystery, and there just doesn't seem to be answers. A better question is what is God doing about it, and how do I join with God in bringing something good out of this pain and out of this suffering? And so when you see people here with imperfect faith getting healed... That's wonderful. It's a miracle, and we should celebrate that. But it doesn't set the expectation that if your faith is strong enough, then you're going to get healed. That's a problem. And again, I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But I want to make that point right there and then. So faith can look like a a dramatic response to a call. Faith can look like desperation, or it can look like other things. Ultimately, what faith is about, I believe, is hope we go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and this is one, if you're ever going to dog ear a portion of scripture or put a bookmark in, bookmark Hebrews 11 and look at that first, first verse. What it says, and this is the NIV version of it, it says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. God has made us promises. He has promised to be with us, He has promised to be for us he has promised never to abandon us and he has promised ultimately to renew and restore us that's the covenant that's god's promises and the hope that those promises generate our confidence in that hope allows us to rest assured that even if we can't perceive what god's doing in a time of pain in a time of suffering whether it's ours or someone else's god is there god is acting And to the degree we can can lean into that confidence and we can rest on that hope, we can become more assured that God is moving and God is acting, even if we can't see exactly how that's happening. That's what faith is. That confidence in that hope reassures us that God is with us. That's faith. That's what faith looks like. So if that's what faith is, then the natural question is, what is faith not? What is faith not? what faith isn't, because there's some problem teachings around that, and I want to highlight those as well. Faith is not certainty. That's why I use the NIV version of that passage from Hebrews, because in the NRSV, which is what I usually preach from, they use the word certainty, and I don't like connecting certainty and faith, because I think that's a problem. I don't think that's what they're trying to do, but I try to stay away from that as far as I can. Because too many people think that you've got to convince yourself a hundred percent of every single doctrine of every single thing, when it comes to faith, every day. I heard somebody once uh, compare it to one of those old carnival games. You know, when the big mallet you hit the thing, and the little puck goes up and rings the bell. That you've got to ring that certainty bell. That that's that's how you know you're truly a disciple. That you're truly a person of faith. Barf. Thank you, Will. Yes, that's the description of as barf? Correct. Well done. It's not what it is. It's not certainty. And I think what happens is people become convinced that they have to do that, and they deceive themselves. They trick themselves into thinking that that's where they are, and then something goes sideways, and and they just crash. Their faith falls apart. Wait a minute, I was certain. Wait a minute, I knew this was going to happen. Wait a minute, God, I put everything I had into this, and it didn't work out. What happened? I was strong in my faith, and it didn't work out. That's why the words like confidence and hope, I think, are better. Because they leave room for doubt. They leave room for the uncertainty that exists in a broken world. There just isn't perfection here on this earth. There just isn't. And expecting us to have to be perfect in our faith is just an unfair expectation. And I dismiss it entirely. And as we see in today's passage, imperfect faith can often get a response from Jesus. Jesus responds to imperfect faith. So the idea of having imperfect faith based in reality has to be better, has to be better than this self-deception, this trickery of saying that we're absolutely certain about our faith. There are good days and there are bad days. There are days that we lean in and we really feel God moving and there are days where we wonder where the heck God actually is. That doesn't mean you don't have faith. It means you're human and your faith is imperfect and Jesus responds to imperfect faith. Faith is not certainty. Faith is also not following a list of rules. We see that all the time in the New Testament. These teachers and religious leaders have this false piety that's based on this idea that he, and I use that pronoun purposefully, he that follows the rules best wins. That's not how faith works at all. It's not. And and Jesus, God bless him, Jesus flips that particular table on the regular, And he does so in this passage, right away at the start. He calls who? Matthew, a tax collector. What? Tax collectors were reviled, tax collectors were working with the Romans, tax collectors were stealing from their own people. How can any rabbi call a tax collector to come follow him? Are you kidding me? can't possibly do that. That can't be part of the rules. No. That's exactly what Jesus does. And to pound the point home. Just in case the Pharisees missed it, he invites more tax collectors and more sinners to come have dinner with him. And the Pharisees are apoplectic. They don't know how you possibly explain this. They don't have the courage to confront Jesus directly, so they go to his, his apostles. How can your teacher do this? How can your teacher eat dinner with tax collectors and sinners? Doesn't he know that's against the rules? Doesn't he know that those who follow the rules best win? Doesn't he understand this? Come on. No. And Jesus overhears him and responds. And what does he say? He quotes a passage from Hosea, Hosea 6.6. In Hosea chapter 6, God is critiquing the nation of Israel and saying, you guys, you're following this sacrificial system to the letter, and that's great, but you're missing the point. You're missing the spirit of the law. Following the law doesn't matter if you get the spirit wrong. And Jesus looks at these folks here and says, yeah, that's exactly what you're doing. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's the quote from Hosea. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If you don't understand what the sacrificial system is supposed to be leading you to, then participating and following the letter of the law when it comes to sacrifice is irrelevant. Jesus, remember, says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to complete it. It isn't a dismissal of the law. It's a reminder of what the law is supposed to lead you to. If you don't get that spirit right, following the letter of it, doesn't matter a bit. Faith is not following a list of rules. And faith is also not holding others to a particular list of rules that you yourself can't meet. It's June, and that means we're in Pride Month. For those of you who are relatively new here to Genesis, we are a community that celebrates our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. We've discussed it, we've debated it, and we voted on it we're a community that's affirming and inclusive. Not everybody's there. And not everybody agreed with that when we made that decision. That's okay. We hold everyone together in community. But one thing I want to highlight is the inclusive portion of that. Because it's something that drives me absolutely nuts. That the church of Christ, the church that follows a man who ate with tax collectors and with other sinners... Then turns around and points out a group of people that they believe are sinning and say, nope, you can't be here. You can't be part of this. That's wrong. That's just flat out wrong. Whatever you feel about sexual identity, about gender identity, whatever you feel, anyone who earnestly wants to follow Jesus is welcome here at Genesis. And there cannot be, there cannot be a list of people that we say, my sins are bad but yours are, dis, are disqualified. You don't get to be here. Anyone who wants to follow Jesus is welcome here. And anyone who, in the name of Christ, tries to marginalize or other a group of people misses the entire point of the gospel. Misses it. Paul tells us in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, that nothing separates us from God's love or God's promise of healing and restoration. Nothing. God bless my fundamentalist and, and conservative brothers and sisters. They try to use that passage from, I think it's 1 Timothy, where about, you know, I'm the worst of sinners, that one, that they hold that up as some type of goal. No, I'm horrible. No, I'm worse than you. No, I'm, I'm much worse than you are. And they go through that routine as though somehow that makes... And then, and then those same people will turn around and say, well, yeah, my, my sins are bad, but your sins, no. Sorry, you can't be here. You can't... If you're the worst of sinners... I, I, my brain breaks trying to do the calculus on that. I'm sorry, it just doesn't work. But here's the thing. If you want to understand why we see story after story in the news of church membership and church attendance dropping, it's not because people aren't listening. It's because people are listening to us saying that nothing separates us from the love of God and then turn around and, don't, and we don't live that out. It's that hypocrisy. That's why people leave. That's why people leave. It's almost like I'm preaching or something. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, but that drives me nuts. It just, the hypocrisy of that in the church drives me crazy. And when I hear those stories and when I hear people talk about that stuff and I hear people criticizing other people for going through deconstruction because they're trying to figure out how to follow Jesus while also being a part of a church that doesn't actually follow Jesus, it just drives me nuts. It just drives me crazy. And then you do work for a church and you go, well, this is what it's supposed to be. We're imperfect people leaning into the hope that God provides us through those promises. And then we turn around and try to push people away. How does that... That can't be what faith is. It just can't. Welcome back, kiddos. Faith looks like hope. It doesn't look like following a list of rules. It doesn't look like fooling yourself into certainty. And it doesn't look like holding other people to unrealistic expectations. So, what do we do with that? What does that mean for us? As usual, for the last, I don't even know how many sermons, I keep coming back to this notion of community and relationship. And if you understand even for a moment what it's like to be an introvert, you'll understand how inconvenient that is. It is convicting as I'll get out. Every time I get up here to preach, it comes, oh there's relationship again, there's community again. <laughs> But it's the truth of where God's leading us. It's the truth of what God wants with us. I mentioned earlier that as we become more confident in the reality of God's promises, we're be- better able to rest assured that God is acting, God is moving, God is participating in our lives and in our community. That doesn't mean, unfortunately, that we get to sit back and say, hey, I know God's got this, we're good, I don't have to do anything. That's not, that's not what that means. It's not what that means. What that means is that confidence in that hope that being able to rest assured that God is acting means that we act. The meta arc of the Bible, the big story, Genesis to Revelation, is explaining to us how God works with and through human beings to bring the kingdom to its fruition in this reality. That's the big story. And that can seem like too big a story at times. Well, how, how do I fit into that? How does little old me fit into that big story? We fit into it by acting for each other with each other for our community and for the world. What do I mean? Here at Genesis, if somebody gets hurt, somebody has an injury, somebody has a surgery, somebody ends up at the hospital, whatever it is, we act. People show up with meals, people show up to help with chores, people show up to run errands. That's just what we do. It's just what we do. If somebody has a mechanical issue, either somebody knows how to fix it or they know a guy or we come up with some money to help replace an appliance. Whatever it is, we act. For each other, with each other, for our community, and for the world. That's what faith in motion looks like. And those little acts of kindness, those little acts of help, I help you, you help me, we all get together and help Olive, whatever it is. Those little acts pile up, and that's how the world gets changed. One person, one relationship, one community at a time. That's where faith is leading us. Faith looks like hope. Faith looks like leaning into the hope that is created by God's promises and together acting with each other, for each other, for our communities. That's how we change the world with faith, ladies and gentlemen. We are empowered through the Spirit by faith. That's what it means to be ordinary apprentices of Jesus during ordinary time. We are empowered in the going. We are empowered in the doing. We place our confidence in the hope created by God's promises, and that becomes the foundation. That becomes the bedrock on which we stand and from which we act. And we do those things for each other, we do those things with each other, for our community, and for the world. Faith looks like hope. Amen? Amen. Endings are a place where life is